Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome to Writer's Routine. This week, our guest taking us through her working day is Nell Patterson. Uh, Her debut is The Silent House. It's a psychological thriller all about a crime committed in a full house where no one has any clue what's going on. Now, we talk about how much she plots, where she edits, and also what happened when she got her editor's notes for the very first time. I'd written a couple of other novels before I wrote The Silent House, but so nobody had really looked over those before so I I wrote in the way I wrote and nobody had given me any feedback like that so in a way it was difficult because it meant changing the way I saw the story and changing the way I saw how I wrote. So more like that on the way with Nell Patterson on this week's Writer's Routine. Yes Welcome to the show. Thanks for giving us a listen. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. Very simple. Uh, It's the show where we take a sneak peek inside the the working day, the daily diary of some of the world's best authors to see what keeps them going, how they get ideas from their head and get them into, fingers crossed, a best-selling book. Now, before we get into it with Nell, uh, I just want to remind you that for the month of April, uh, we are supported by Scrivener. And we've managed to sort you out with a brilliant discount for what I really genuinely think is the best writing software around. Uh, If you've listened to the show for a while, you will have heard all about Scrivener. Uh, Quite a lot of the authors that we chat to absolutely rave about it. Uh, And and that's not a coincidence, I think. Uh, Nell praises it hugely in the chat you're just about to hear. Scrivener is a is a writing tool, a brilliant. It lets you plan, plot, and move and research the way that you write. It helps you link things in a way that other writing softwares and I think your general filing system uh, probably wouldn't let you. It would probably get all a bit out of hand if you tried to do it yourself. So Scrivener is there to do it for you. It's got a virtual pin board on there with colour charts and tags so you can keep track of all the characters and the stories. Scrivener was created by writers for writers. The lead developer that had the idea for the app as he couldn't find the right software to help him with his own novel writing. Now it won't write for you... (laughs) Uh, but it will give you everything that you do need to start writing and to help you try and carry on with it. And I think this has come around at the perfect time, really. While we are uh, stuck at home, 
what with one thing and, and another, uh, with no real end date in sight, uh, maybe you're using this as the opportunity to finally get that book down that you've always had in your head. Maybe you've got the tips from the show and you want to use this opportunity to actually tell your story. Uh, well, I think that Scrivener will really help you out with that. All you need to do, use the code ROUTINE when you check out at literatureandlatte.com for 20% off Scrivener. You can have a free trial so you can get your head around it while you're there as well. But if you do this, you don't just help yourself with your writing, you also help out us at the show as well. Uh, yeah, please give it a go. Use routine, R-O-U-T-I-N-E, and you'll get 20% off Scrivener over at literatureandlatte.com. Now, this week's guest is Nell Patterson. Her debut is a psychological thriller. It's called The Silent House. It's set in a, in a death family, and it talks about a crime that is committed uh, when no one knows it's happening. Now, we talk about how she got the idea and what happened when she figured out how her protagonist would be a British sign language teacher, just like she herself is. We talk about how being a teacher also affects the way that she tells her stories, what it means for that first draft and what it also means for how much she needs to edit her second and third drafts and beyond. Uh, We also chat about the books that weren't published for her in the past and why she thinks that is. And it's a really good uh, detailed chat today. We have a nice good dive through her working day and also find out how that's changed with children as well. So let's get into it. Sit back. We start as we always do uh, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, there isn't one particular place where I sit to write. I don't have an office. <laughs> you know, I don't have a desk. So I often write, particularly if I'm writing a first draft, I will sit on uh, an armchair in our spare bedroom. Uh, and so I'm normally looking at the spare bed, which at the moment tends to be covered in baby clothes that my son's grown out of uh, <laughs> that are waiting to go in the loft. Uh, although sometimes I do, particularly if I'm editing, I prefer to sit at the dining table. Um and then, what can I see then? I can see the piano. That's about it. <laughs> well, why the dining table? Why are you editing in that fixed space? Uh, I think it's to do with the fact that I'm sitting in a different position. Okay. When I'm sitting in the armchair, when I'm writing, if I'm just writing a first draft or writing a new chapter while I'm editing something like that, I'm sitting in a more relaxed position. I'm sitting back. I've got my feet up on the spare bed normally. Uh, but when I'm sitting at the dining table, I'm sitting a lot more upright. I think that's what it is. I think it's to do with the position I'm sitting in. It affects the way I'm thinking or vice versa, the way I'm thinking I want to sit in a different position. How have you learned that? I haven't. I just, it, it just happened. <laughs> just when I was editing, um, when I was editing uh, The Silent House, I found I was sitting in the spare room and I just thought, this isn't, this isn't right. Um, so then I sat at the dining table, though we had a different dining table, which was a bit too high. So we've got a new one now that's just the right height. Uh, it wasn't just so that I felt more comfortable there that we get, got a new dining table, but it certainly helped. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's just the habit I've kind of slipped into. So that's your editing. Now, tell me more about the writing. So you say you're in a, in a spare bedroom, is that right? Mm-hmm. So you're in the spare bedroom. You got <laughs> spare bedrooms are usually full of stuff, aren't they? Yes. Um, how does that? How does the? I've always I'm always curious about the managed chaos and mm-hmm. a writing environment almost being reflective over the state of how you write. Yes. Is, yeah. If you've got a cluttered spare room, I'm not saying that you do, but for oh, instance, if you, <laughs> you've got a cluttered spare room, yeah, does that tend to mirror the, the cluttered way that you write? I'm not I chucking this thought, out. I'm, I'm I just haven't curious. thought about it that way, but no, that, I can see that kind of works because I I am happy to write a first draft 
in a cluttered space. But maybe that's why I prefer to sit at the dining table as well, because my dining, uh, the dining area is much tidier. So that's maybe why I prefer that for editing. Yeah, it's possible. Maybe that's mm. why. Maybe you've stumbled yeah. upon something. Yeah. Oh, most of my books are in the uh, in the spare bedroom as well, which, you know, that's always always nice to have your shelves of Agatha Christie and Jeffrey Deaver and, <laughs> and people like that that I can always aspire to. <laughs> Anything on the walls of your spare room that, 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 that help you with inspiration, with plotting perhaps as well? No, I do have... Um, a paper cut image of uh, death from the Terry Pratchett Discworld novels in there. So maybe, you know, that's, that's inspiring the crime writing. Who knows? But no, nothing particularly uh, other than that. If I were to walk into your room what, when you're mid-storytelling, mm-hmm. would I get any clues as to what you were writing no. around you? Mm, uh, well, possibly. Um, I do have a, a notebook that's full of ideas, and if I'm mid rewrite so I'll I'll write a first draft print it off scribble all over it and then rewrite on my laptop but then the printed off version will probably be scattered on the floor all around me so possibly if you picked up <laughs> one of those pages that might give you a clue <laughs> uh, and the notebook if I were to open the notebook yes would I that would, make any would sense to me you, no. <laughs> no, okay, that's okay that's fine <laughs> quite that bad um it would yes it would it's it's not written in any particularly cryptic way it's um you know lists of ideas and then plot points for novels you know things like that well plot points for whatever I'm working on at the time so we've um, ironed that out I think um well, the show's writer's routine, so talk me through yours then. Now, the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, on a day when you are writing, how does it look? <sighs> on a day when I'm writing. I never have a day when writing is the main thing I'm doing because I am also a teacher. I teach part-time at the moment, although I was teaching full-time when I wrote The Silent House. Uh, I have a one-year-old son. Well, he'll be one tomorrow. <laughs> so a lot of my time is taken up with doing things other than writing. So there's a lot to manage in your day. Yes. So talk to me about how you do that. Um, well, writing fits in where it can, where I can, where I can find some time for writing. So it's often in the evening once my son's asleep, um, my husband will go out and walk the dog and I'll sit down and I'll do an hour, maybe, um, maybe a couple if I get, if I get carried away. Um, the most time I tend to get is either if uh, I take my son up to my mum and dad's house and then I sit in their study uh, and write while they entertain the boy. Uh, (laughs) So sometimes I'll have a few hours then um, or sometimes maybe at the weekend my husband will take uh, our son up to his parents and then I'll get a few hours that way. But it's never, there's never a set routine. There's never, uh, right, every Monday I have this time to write, every Thursday I have this time to write. So I just have to make the best use of the time I get really. How are you at doing that? Are, are you are, are you someone that's good at if there is a cheeky half hour here and there? Can you immediately get down to it? I would say it depends on what I'm doing. Depends on what uh, what stage of the writing process I'm at. I think if I'm in the middle of writing something brand new, I can't take a half hour, an hour maybe. Yes. So if if my son's having an afternoon nap, something like that, I can use that time. Um, but then, for instance, when doing page proofs, so when you've got the very last, uh, very last version to check through of the novel before it's ready, uh, all printed off, just checking for errors, continuity errors, and uh, punctuation errors, things like that, that I could do in if I had spare ten minutes, I could sit down and do a couple of pages. That that's something I could I could make use of the time there. So it depends on what what stage I'm at. 
when you're ramping up to this this precious hour or so that you would tend <laughs> to get in the evening, are you good at channeling your energy in that way? So you think, I've only got an hour, I need to get everything I need to done. I need to get everything I need to do done. Um, are, are you good at sitting there and, and cracking away at it? Would you know what you needed to write each time to make the best use of your time? Uh, usually I know, yes, because I, I am the sort of person who I, I won't leave it at the end of a chapter. I will leave it partway through a chapter or if I've just finished a chapter, I think, well, I have to write at least a paragraph of the next chapter. So then I've got something so I can kind of hit the ground running when I start the next day. Um, I sometimes am a bit of a procrastinator. Yes, I'll go on and I'll pick up my laptop and I'll check Twitter and this, that and the other. So I've started um, using the Pomodoro technique. Um, yes, which, this is 25 and 5. Yes. So I, well, I've changed it slightly. So I tend to start with 15 um, and then a five minute and then I'll maybe put another 15 minute timer on. But I tend to find by the time the second lot of 15 minutes, the time has gone off, I just turn it off and carry on writing. But I find having that at first saying, right, you're just going to do 15 minutes kind of gets me over the the daunting aspect of oh I have so much I have to do in this short space of time and so I think you're saying well you only have to do 15 minutes you know it kind of like, it's like oh yeah I've, I've, I can do 15 minutes that's fine and then that helps me get into the flow of it uh, I mean it was a lot more relaxed then because I didn't you know have have the routine that you need to have with a small baby um and yes yeah, so I I could find the time kind of here and there and I think I had more energy for staying up and writing late at night as well, maybe on a Friday night, something like that. So, uh, yes, but I've never been, I've never been one to have a a strict routine. I just tend to write. I always tended to write when I felt like it, which until you have a deadline is is great. <laughs> but then when you have a contract, which is the the thing that I absolutely wanted the most of all. Um, so then you have the contract and you have the deadline it does it does change things it does put a little bit more pressure on um so i have found that there've been days when i think oh i really don't want to write anything but i have to because i've got to got to reach a deadline uh, and that's where the pomodoro technique i think came in with helping me to on the days where i really found it difficult just to kind of ease myself in like you say aside from the pomodoro technique mm. is there any other constant if, if every part of your writing day <laughs> is as scattered because it's forced to mm-hmm. be that have you got something that it does tend to be the same it does tend to happen whenever you write aside from the pomodoro that that you need this just to help the words to come out um i don't think so no i mean i like it to be as quiet as possible i take my hearing aids out um which i'm i'm only moderately deaf i don't that doesn't mean that i can't hear anything when i take them out but it does mean that everything's quieter and i'm less likely to hear noise from next door or anything like that this is a strange question. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, as, a, as a teacher, mm-hmm. do you find that making big concepts accessible to people, which is what, what teachers do, mm-hmm. do you think that helped the way that you tell stories in making this idea that's in your head, making that available to readers? The answer might, might be no. I'm just curious, mm. and it just came to me. Possibly. That's not something I've really thought about before. I think... Uh, I think it does mean that my earlier drafts are very much tell rather than show um i think i think i do quite 
I do go down a bit of a teachery route in some in some ways, and particularly because in the silent house I write about the deaf community, and there are aspects of the deaf community that a lot of people um, might not be familiar with. And I think in, in earlier versions of, of the silent house there was a, a little bit of a bit too much kind of oh let me let me tell you about this. Um, so that's that's possibly that way, but then. I don't. I don't know. It's not really something I thought about. How easy was it for you to change that in later drafts so it was more show rather than tell? I would say originally it was quite difficult because it was something that came from editorial feedback, which obviously I'd not had before. When I'd I'd written a couple of other novels before I wrote The Silent House, um, and they're not published and didn't get me an agent or anything like that. Um, but so nobody had really looked over those before. So I, I wrote in the way I wrote and nobody had given me any feedback like that. So in a way it was difficult because it meant changing the way I saw the story and changing the way I saw how I wrote. But I think as I've gone on, it's helped me to change the process of myself editing, if you see what I mean. Mm. So it's helped me to see um, my own flaws in my first draft. So then when I'm self-editing hopefully I'm able to do a bit more of that work before somebody else gets their eyes on it what about when you are writing the first draft of a new novel maybe Mm -hmm. your next novel Mm -hmm. if you know hang on these these are the times these are the kind of things that I tend to do I tend to perhaps be a bit uh, didactic and and teachery in in your own words um uh, how does that affect then the way you are writing your next story I, I would imagine that for me it would be quite crippling because I'm overthinking everything. Is this? The, am I telling this the right way? Am I showing rather than telling? How is it for you? Yes, definitely, definitely crippling. <laughs> um, I, I found that when I was writing uh, the sequel to uh, to the Silent House, I found that there were things that I was thinking about to do with um, the way I write, to do with the language I use. For instance, every writer has words that they overuse. One of mine is just. Uh, I seem to remember getting a. Um, uh, an email from Tilda, my editor, saying, do you realise you've used the word just 280 times in this novel or <laughs> something along those lines? <laughs> Please take some of them out. Um, and uh, I think one of my characters was always always had the same facial expression as well. So I, I do find myself overthinking about that. And that that made it really difficult in the early stages of that first draft. Because... I was thinking too much about that rather than just getting the story down. And I think I just had a word with myself one day and said, you just need to get it written and then you can work on those things. When I, you know, when I then edit it myself, I can think, oh, cross out all the justs. You know, I can just do a find and replace just (laughs) (laughs) something to, to get rid of them. But I don't need to worry about it now. I can write, I can get the words out. You see, now I'm trying to not say the word just. You could say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to edit. I'm not going to count how many justs that you say. No, well, let me follow on from that. Uh, you're talking about the first draft, often the dirty draft or the vomit yeah. draft. How perfect do your words need to be in the first draft? Oh, not at all. I just want to get the story out. Um, so I kind of have a zero draft in a way, because if I think of the one that I send off to people more as the first draft. So I kind of have a zero draft, which is just me getting the story out. And then, as I say, I print it off, um, think, hang on, that scene should be much later, shuffle things around in the order-wise. Um, I think I took out an entire character um, when I did, when I went between, say, the zero draft and the first draft of um, 
of the sequel to the silent house um i did i took out an entire character and then i think later i've taken out another two um i do overpopulate my novels <laughs> <laughs> too many people in them um but yeah i think the the initial i just get the story out that's that's the main thing and then i can fix it later i can i can have a look at the mistakes i've made i have times where i've written something where one character died three times because i kept changing my mind as i wrote at what point in the novel they were going to die and so i thought right i'm not going to go back and change it because i don't edit while i'm writing i don't edit anything while i'm writing i just write it and then I go back and edit once I've completed a full draft. So, yeah, so I th- I couldn't decide where this character died, so I wrote it three times and then kept the one I wanted and got rid of the others and rewrote those scenes. Well, I write in Scrivener, which is uh, a writing programme that is very flexible and allows you to move scenes around very easily. And you can colour code things so you can keep track of story arcs or characters or whatever it is you feel you need to keep track of so you know if you've got a a story that has two parallel um storylines running through it you can color code them and it's easy to keep track of um and so that helps when i'm editing on paper i will write myself big notes saying no this needs to be before x event or before chapter 16 or before this day because my novels um so the silent house and the one following are written in in days so i say well this needs to be before saturday um and so then i can go when i'm putting it all back into scrivener i can shuffle my chapters around and say well that one needs to be earlier and then because i've got the whole overview on the screen there i can see right if that one's earlier that one also needs to be earlier and i can do it that way how much do you know about a story before you do sit down to tell it i mean clearly using scrivener uh, mm-hmm. means like you're a fa- i would a fairly thorough pr- plotter on the back end mm-hmm. is, is that right how much do you know about a story before you start typing away a lot of it i i need to know kind of the full arc of the main plot there are subplot bits that that come in as i'm writing um and it will change as i'm writing sometimes i'll have the entire thing plotted out and drafted out and then i get halfway through and think hang on it's going off on a completely different tangent um but i need to know who did it and why i need to know who my characters are who my suspects are and why they're suspects and at what point we're going to find out these bits of information that make them suspects um i like to know what's happening at 25 percent approximately what's happening at 50 percent what's happening 75 percent of the way through the novel um yes i'm i am a thorough thorough plotter (laughs) and the only thing that i've been that i won't plot straight away um in the silent house at the beginning of each day there's a flashback scene um back to the time leading up to the murder that's at the beginning of the book um and the same happens in the in the second book and that is something that i've not written until the very end because as the main body of the novel progresses then i'll be writing down ideas for what those flashback scenes should be and what should work are you writing the flashback scenes as separate scenes or is it one long narrative that you are then chunking up no, I'm writing them as separate scenes. So you are thinking of them in, in that Yes, I'm way thinking of, of them in, in separate flashes. Um, yeah, separate scenes. So like a snapshot of certain characters. And I have to make sure that we see enough of all the different characters that are, that are kind of feeding into the main plot without giving too much away, but also being able to give the reader a bit more of an insight into the different characters from a slightly different angle. 
when did that idea come to you to, to have these flashbacks before each chapter? I have to credit my editor with that. Ah. Well, the first editor I had at Avon, uh, Rachel Faulkner Wilcox, I believe it was her idea, and uh, with The Silent House, and it made it such a better book, in my opinion. It made a massive difference. Uh, so yes, it was I, it was entirely on editorial feedback. And at first I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this. But the moment I did it and put it in, I realised it was absolutely the right thing to do. I'd love to know why an editor has thought about doing that. Because I don't know, we'd yeah. have to ask her. Yeah. I would like to know. Um, <laughs> I think I think the idea was to give the reader, um, as I say, more insight into the characters. Because the entire novel is told from um, one point of view, one perspective, which is Paige, the BSL interpreter. And, um, so of course, so the other characters, we don't get to see them out of the context in which Paige interacts with them un- until we have the flashback scene. So then we get to see the character, other characters in different environments or um, interacting with different people. And so it does, it gives the reader a little bit more insight into the, into the other characters. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, before we get back to it with Nell, I just want to give you a little push towards our Patreon page. Uh, A really easy way that you can support what we're doing at the show. Uh, Just a little bit or so a month really helps us carry on bringing you these episodes as frequently as we can. Just helps us keep things ticking over. Now, I know what with one thing or another at the moment, uh, times are pretty tight around the world. And and, but if if you do have a dollar or so uh, to throw our way, every single month we really appreciate it uh, you'll get a, a couple of tokens of our thanks as well bookmarks badges those kind of things just to say that we really appreciate the fact that you are enjoying this show enough to help us carry on now i think this is almost our 100th episode so 100 episodes there of tips and stories and ways into the industry from some of the world's best writers. If you have learned anything in these 100 episodes that have helped the way that you tell your stories, a way that you can pay it back is to support us over on our Patreon page. Just whatever you can spare really goes a long way, I promise. Thank you so much. Head to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. My name's Garrett Conley. Uh, I wrote the book Boy Erased and it's out right now. And here's my tip. Read everything and read voraciously. And don't question it. Just follow your instincts and you'll write something unusual because everyone writes the same thing. 
right now that's out the way Let, let's get back to the reason that we're actually here uh, more chats more chatter with some of the world's best writers let's get back to it with nell patterson she's the author of the silent house now in this part we, we chat about the tricks and the methods uh, that she uses to keep the reader going how does she make sure that the next page is being turned we also talk about how much she wanted to portray the deaf community accurately without making it a gimmick as just a throwaway plot device. And we pick things up talking about the very first idea that she had for The Silent House. Where did it actually come from? It wasn't a, just a, a flash idea. It it grew. Um, and the plot came from a, vague, a vaguely similar true story. Um, it was a terrible story about a, a child who um was a child who died whilst in the house with two adults and both of the adults blamed the other and the police couldn't find enough evidence to prosecute either and so there was no justice for this child nobody was prosecuted nobody was convicted um of the the death of this child and that that came to me and i thought well what would have happened if both of those adults were deaf and they each assumed the other one had done it, but maybe somebody else had come into the house, but they didn't know, or maybe one of them had done it. You know, so I, you know, I, I kind of that was how I came up with the plot. Um, but before that, I had already been playing with the idea of having the deaf community um, in a in a novel, and I hadn't I hadn't kind of settled on a plot. But my main character, Paige, went through a few different incarnations. So at first, she was. A police officer. She was a hearing police officer, but who came from a deaf family. So she had grown up using BSL um, just as much as she'd been using English, and and so I thought, well, she could then, if there was an investigation involving a deaf person, maybe they would ask for her because she had that experience. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to write a police procedural. <laughs> I don't want to write a straight police procedural. That wasn't what I wanted to write. And so then she became a deaf journalist. Um, now this was before um, a. Will Dean's Dark Pines came out. I just point out, <laughs> just yeah, um, ideas all floating in the ether at the same time. Um, then she became a deaf journalist investing, investigating a cold case. But then I thought, how is she going to have access to all the information she needs? And then it was, I think it was like a three in the morning sitting bolt upright, going, oh yes, she can be a BSL interpreter. So there wasn't one particular flash of inspiration for this. It, it, it grew gradually over. I would say three or four months until I finally settled on both the role of Paige as a main character and the plot that that was going to follow. How are you settling on this and 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 working things through when, when you've got the character of Paige and you know that she wants to be there? When you've got this old uh, case mm-hmm. of, of the child, how are you sitting there and getting the ideas for what the plot will be? What comes next after that very initial glimmer of hang on, maybe that's a story. Uh, I think I start with a lot of what if questions. So, what if this happened? What if it was this? What if it was that? Um, is it written down at this point? As in, are you are you writing very bluntly? What if huh, brainstorming, or is it just sometimes? In your head? Sometimes, yes. Um, it really depends on on the situation. To be honest, I can't I can't think back then how I did it. Um, I think that was probably mostly in my head at the time. Um, but then that's when when I have that kind of basic idea um so i think right this this crime has occurred um 
then I jump straight to who did it and why. And if I have to get that in my head first, who did it and why, and then I populate it with other characters who can be suspects and think why would they be suspects and look at their relationship to the victim of the crime, possibly their relationship to the killer, and then after that, that's when I fill in the actual events and of the plot and the, the kind of interaction between them all and what happens in the in the plot progression. As you're quite a thorough plotter, d- yes. does <laughs> does this exist outside of the story? Uh, as in, are you are you writing down chapter one, scene one? Here's what's going to happen. Scene two. Now we do this. Scene three. Yes. Yeah. I I will plot that all in Scrivener. So. Um, when when you do scenes in Scrivener, each one has a note card. Uh, so I will put. Um, sometimes it will just be a line. Sometimes it will be quite a quite you know maybe a, a full paragraph or two about what I want to happen in that scene. Um, and as I say, sometimes I'll be writing. I'll get halfway through, and actually, I think that's that's not going in the right direction. But then often I will stop and replot a few bits. I will look at where I'm going and think, right, that bit's not going to work or that bit is going to work but it's going to have to be later and then add more bits in as I go along. I like to have that. I like to know where I'm going. You know, it's it's like having your sat-nav. I want to I want to know where I'm going. I don't just sit off and, and think, oh, I'll just go for a nice drive. You know, <laughs> I need to know where I'm going. Uh, preferably I will have Googled it and had a look at the place that I'm parking <laughs> when I get there. Uh, yeah, and I, I do actually do that as well. So this is, this is the way my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> with the sat-nav, with the driving metaphor, mm-hmm. for, for some of the more random subplots, which you mentioned earlier on, which you don't yes. know is going to happen, um, yeah. how, at what point do you start to see these in your uh, through the windscreen and how mm. open are you to twisting down a side road if one of your characters was to lead you there? Um, I think I'm all right with the twisting down a side road because... In, in my head, in, if we're going with the same metaphor, it's more of a diversion to get around the roadworks um, because I know we're still going to end up at the at the same destination at the end because if I get to a point and I think, no, the ending is incorrect, then I will have to, you know, pull over and reprogram the sat-nav, which is me then replotting, like, the second half of the novel or something and then thinking about where I'm going and why it's gone, why it's gone off in a completely different direction. Um, with the with the minor bits of subplot, well, minor bits, but the the other bits that are going along, that tends to be as I'm writing, as the characters become more more real, more fleshed out. Um, because as much as I can write about a character, they they don't really come to life in a way until I'm actually writing them, and so then that's when I need to give them other friends or other interests or um, other. Um, reasons why they might be involved with this case or you know things like that other other aspects of their personality into their existence that I maybe hadn't been able to think about until I'd started writing them what's your entry point for a story what, what really grips you about what a story you want to tell is is it the plot is it a character what, what does it tend to be it's definitely the plot I'm definitely more plot driven than, than character driven and I think characterization is something that I always need to work on in edits because um in my early drafts i don't i don't put enough into the characters and that's that's just the way i write and that's the way i've i've always written i think um and it is always a plot that draws me into a novel idea i've got you know i've got pages full of potential novel ideas uh, that i've been amassing over the last 10 years i think and they usually come from what if 
situations as i as i said earlier so um oh, i can't even think of an example i uh, i think it was one summer i was i was saying to my husband you know what in in the summer holidays a family you know people next door could go on holiday and would we notice if they went missing because after a while we'd just say oh, they've been away for a while so they could have been missing for three or four weeks. And yes, obviously, my husband gives me a strange look and thinks, <laughs> really? Is this what you're talking about? They're now nice people. We don't want them to disappear. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it goes along those lines. Yes, my brain probably works in very strange ways, but it is always what-if questions. And what if this happened? What if, what if a person did this on impulse? What if somebody was hiding this? And that's when a, a plot on a storyline kind of builds up in my head. And th- after that, that's when my characters appear. How, how much are you paying attention to the tricks that you're using to keep the reader with you and turning the page? I think, again, when I'm writing, I, I'm not thinking about that. When I'm just writing a, a new chapter or writing a first draft of, of anything, I'm I'm not thinking about that. Because I'm writing it because I'm enjoying writing it because I have a story in my head that I want to write down. That's That's it, purely. And... I think I have to, it was important for me when I was doing the first draft of, of the sequel that I remembered that because I'd always had that before because I had never written anything under contract before and so I'd never had any sort of pressure. Um, and I think it was important for me to hold on to I mean, writing because I enjoy it and not because I'm thinking about who, who's going to read it, not because I'm thinking about um, how many copies it's going to sell, nothing. I just want to write it because this is the story in my head and I, I want to get it out. After that, yes, that's when I'll um, I'll think about mm, is this giving a bit too much of a clue away, or mm, are there not enough clues? Really, enough like, little pointers? Are there not enough red herrings? Things like that, just to to keep the reader thinking. Oh, does that mean that that person did it? You know, is there a part of you perhaps if you read a lot of this this mm-hmm. type of genre, perhaps yeah. that you are just doing this naturally without realizing it? Do you think that's it? Possibly, possibly because I do. I mean, I read pretty much all crime i read i read a few other things but normally if they've been written by friends um you know if i if i have friends who are writers who are whose books i buy or people i particularly admire um for their writing um but mostly yeah i i read crime and i read thrillers and i'm terrible at guessing who it is you'd think that writing my <laughs> own now or reading as many as i do you'd think i'd be you know i think i find it easy to guess but no never never um, actually, I was reading Yvonne McDermott the other week and I did guess who it was and I was so proud of myself because <laughs> I never normally do. Um, but it's possible. It's possible because it's it's what I read and I read a lot of. Then, yeah, that sort of structure and that sort of way of of forming a story is is kind of comes naturally in, in that way. As you say, there's not, I don't think there's been many uh, thriller crime novels set in the deaf community. You teach... For mm-hmm. the deaf community, you're as you say partially deaf yourself. Um, how important was it for you to mm. do the to do the community justice and not portray them as as you know not not just make it a gimmick of the story? Yeah, uh, that was that was very important, and I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write a story kind of set in the way that I did because a lot of novels that feature deaf characters just have a single deaf character. And their deafness is often a plot device. Not always, but it often is. Uh, I mean, there are some... I mean, um, I, uh, there's a Jeffrey Deaver novel that um, 
has uh, people from a school for the deaf. So they obviously there you've got a variety of deaf characters uh, in the same way in the same way I do. Um, but I just wanted to yeah I wanted to portray the deaf community as I say and not not that their deafness was a plot device and obviously it is in a way um, because of the the nature of of the story but I've got a wide variety of deaf characters you know I don't just have one deaf character um, and uh, this is the way they communicate and this is this is their job you know I've got characters in a wide range of jobs i've got some in in skilled professional jobs i've some i've got some who are on benefits and i've got people everywhere in between i've got deaf people who are lovely i've got deaf people who are horrible um because deaf people are just people they know they're in all walks of life and just the same as hearing people and i think i kind of wanted to reflect that in a way but i also wanted to reflect the idea of the deaf community as a community with a shared language and culture so um, deaf people will often prefer the word deaf rather than the word hearing impaired because hearing impaired suggests that there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed, whereas deaf is just what you are. And deaf people, um, if they are sign language users, then they've got that that shared language and there are shared aspects of culture. Um, like Deaf comedy is quite different from uh, the comedy that hearing people are used to because a lot of, certainly in Britain, a lot of our comedy is wordplay. Uh, and of course, for deaf people the comedy they uh, often enjoy tends to be a lot more visual a lot more slapstick uh, and based on visual jokes through bsl so you know there are there are big differences in culture that i think unless you come in contact with the deaf community you maybe don't understand and i just wanted to reflect that a little bit uh, and lastly i mean you mentioned right at the start that you have two novels that weren't mm-hmm. published <laughs> actually i think it's more than that okay well <laughs> what, why do you think that was what do you think changed between those and then this one being published is it were you getting a lot of feedback and just constantly learning from it or is it just this is the plot that worked i changed genre i used to write sci-fi <laughs> i changed genre yes uh, yeah i my feedback um i submitted various novels oh i think i i think four novels i think i'd actually submitted to agents before i, I signed with my agent and the feedback i received was oh you write very well but we don't like the story that was all that was that was the feedback I got and it was consistent that that was the feedback that I was getting and I thought well I don't really know because there's all sorts of courses to learn how to write better um but how do you come up with better stories and I I think I gave up writing for about 18 months at, at one point and then I think I stepped back and I looked at my bookshelves and the sea of black spines and thought hang on why am I writing sci-fi when I pretty much mostly read crime. Mm. And so I thought, oh, I'll try writing a crime novel. And here we are. <laughs> but I've got to say, it is important to note on rejections from agents. Um, if, you know, people are listening who are uh, in the process of, of submitting to agents. I think I had 57 rejections before I signed with my literary agent. And I had two rejections from my agent before she took me on from for two previous novels. So it's really important to know that Rejections are never personal, and they're never about you. And they're not saying not you, not ever. They're just saying not this novel, not right now. And, you know, the fact that Juliet took me on for this novel shows that it certainly wasn't personal. She remembered me from my previous ones, and she said, yes, now, finally, this is the sort of thing that you need to be writing. And here we are. 
And there you go. That is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Thank you so much to Nell for coming on the show. You can find out loads more about her debut, The Silent House, over on our website, which is writersroutine.com. While you're there, a few things that you can do too. You can get in touch using the contact form on the website. And I would love to hear from you if you are a writer, a debut writer maybe, and your book launch has been slightly dampened by everything that's happening right now. If you had such lofty plans for all the signings that you were going to do, the talks, the Q&As, if they've all been uh, pushed back, pushed to one side for a little bit, well, well, let me do what I can do to help uh, your book launch. Let's do like, we're, we're doing virtual book releases on this show where I, I give you plugs, I give you shout outs. I'm going to try and squeeze in as many as I can. If that's you, uh, I'd love to hear about your book. Just send over who you are and about the story that you've worked on and maybe a little bit about your story. Fire it over to the content contact page at writersroutine.com and then I will do what I can to push people your way. Also, if you can, yeah, please do support us over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. If you can't do that just now, uh, then please do leave us a review over on the Apple Podcast Store. So easy, just find us over there. Five stars only, please. I don't want anything less than five stars. Just don't waste your time or mine if you're not going to give us that. But head over to the Apple Podcast Store, find Writers Routine, uh, leave us a little review. Uh, make sure you take advantage of that fantastic offer from Scrivener, honestly the best writing software around. Use the code ROUTINE, R-U-I-T-I-N-E, to save 20% uh, on Scrivener 3, uh, I think they've got at the moment, the brand new Scrivener 3. Yeah, you, uh, use the code ROUTINE, save 20% on that at literatureandlatte.com. I guarantee that you won't regret it. And give us a follow, uh, there's so much isn't there, <laughs> give us a follow uh, at WritersPod over on Twitter. And we will see you next week, we're chatting to his historical fiction author Lucienne Boyce. I'll see you then on Writer's Routine. Bye! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.